0: Welcome back. In part one of this conversation with Rick Hansen, we discussed what the mind is, how we truly can enrich and absorb good experiences, and how to look at the human mind as the ultimate lab for experimentation. We also learned about neuroplasticity and how far this can take us. Dr. Rick Hansen is a psychologist, a senior fellow at the UC Berkeley a Greater Good Science Center. He began meditating in 1974 and never turned back. He followed a spiritual path since and combined that with his scientific background to become the founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. Rick is a New York Times best-selling author. His books include Neurodharma, Resilient, Hardwiring Happiness, The Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, and Mother Nature. He's been published in 29 languages, and sold close to a million copies in English alone. His free weekly newsletter has 180,000 subscribers, to whom he distributes wisdom for free, and his programs online have scholarships available for those with financial needs. Rick is an expert on positive neuroplasticity, but in my view, he truly is an expert on positive change for our world. Okay, can, I'm going to attempt to do a an, a, a tough exper- experiment here because uh-huh. so I, I again I mean I think you and I are talking and referring to certain things they make the learn cortisol and so on and so forth. Maybe it would be not a bad idea if we do a quick neuroscience one 101. Okay. Oh, good. So let me throw a few words at you and you explain to us what they do. Amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain. What is the Amygdala?
1: Oh, it is... This is so great, Mo. This is definitely one of my. I've done a million interviews, and this is definitely tied for first place. Oh man!
0: There you go. Oh yeah, it's the truth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How can you take it in? (laughs) 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 Okay, great. So, really, it's it's so cool. So, inside the three pounds of tofu-like tissue in the coconut, are about eighty-five billion neurons amidst another hundred billion or so support cells estimates of these quantities have been refining lately. A typical neuron makes several thousand connections with other neurons, giving us our own internal worldwide web in the inner world with several hundred trillion microprocessors, each one of those connections being like a little microprocessor. And to quote Charles Sherrington, an early neuroscientist in the previous century, it's like an enchanted loom, the brain is, continually weaving, the tapestry of consciousness sparkling away. Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. You,
0: you know, without interrupting you, when someone yeah. like me who has really been instrumental in the, the internet and a lot of the technologies we use today, yeah. we are not even close. The entire internet put put together is not even close to the number of connections you can have inside one human brain, right? Yeah. It's just incredible, that machine, that is that we take so much for granted. It really is extraordinary.
1: And to me, that scientific investigation, I think of it a little bit, we're almost like in a third or fourth or fifth wave of neuroscientific investigation. It's almost like fractals, you know, where you go into something like that. You go, okay, the brain is a big mess. Then we go into a neuron and we go, oh my gosh, neurons are unbelievably complicated. It's like, it gets, it's fractal. Then you go, let's just pick one synapse. And then you look closely at that synapse. It becomes extraordinarily complicated. And then you look at one little receptor and a particular kind of molecule that works in that particular receptor in a synapse. And then again, it proliferates. It gets unbelievably complicated. So to bring it back though, in this three pounds of tofu-like tissue, you know, one and a half kilos, there is structure. So the brain evolved loosely, like building a house from the bottom up in three stages. The first floor of the house of the brain is the so-called reptilian brainstem, which encompasses a lot of evolution before reptiles began to arise. And then sitting on top of that in the second floor of the house of the brain is what's called the subcortex which includes parts like the amygdala, the hippocampus and other parts, it's associated with the mammalian stage of evolution. And the subcortex is very, so the brainstem is very involved with raw survival, keeping the heart beating, keeping the lungs going, regulating the viscera of the body, and a lot managing our need for safety through negative emotions like fear or rage or disgust, whose control centers are situated in the brainstem, and withdrawal—you know, mm. dr- getting away from a from a threat. But While it this,
0: it's like a reptile. It's basically yeah, it pull away, boom, Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. While uh, like a fly just boom, moves away from you quickly, mm. you know. Then there's the subcortex, which is associated with mammalian stage of evolution, warm-blooded creatures, our ancestors, go the rat-like ancestors around 200 million years ago, living in Jurassic Park, right? But cleverly hunting at night because they were warm-blooded, able to sustain pursuit because we have the emergence of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. And with the growing development of emotion, being able to be more nuanced in their needs for satisfaction, our second major type of need for getting rewards of different kinds, in particular, beginning to bond with others and care for their own young. So that's the second floor of the house of the brain. And then sitting on top of all that is the third floor of the house of the brain, which is the primary focus of brain evolution the last several million years, the primate and especially human neocortex. The brain has tripled in volume in just the last several million years. It's amazing how much the brain has gotten bigger. It's been a primary focus of biological evolution. And that level, the neocortex, the third floor of the house of the brain, is very focused on our social, our need for connection, on our social capabilities of language, cooperative planning, empathy, bonding, compassion, Altruism, gossip, and politics. (laughs) (laughs) So that's that's a kind of a basic structure. It's it's a model the triune brain, so called, which is a little simplifying. The whole brain works together.
0: reptilian, mammalian, and the third is called
1: primate human. Yeah. The the way I think of it is that inside us all, we are we are walking museums. Mm -hmm. We are walking museums, and the more you go down in the house of the brain, you go back in time. And it's, it's as if we all, and I feel it, have within us to simplify an inner lizard, mouse, and monkey. And I think that relates to how we manage our needs and manage our needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection. And why it's repeatedly important as we move through the day to pet the lizard, calm the anxieties, soothe ourselves, Find calm strength to deal with real threats, you know, no ostriches with their heads in the sand, pet the lizard. It's also important as we move through the day to feed the mouse, to repeatedly internalize experiences of goals accomplished, emails done, problems solved, pleasures enjoyed, take it in, feed the mouse, and of course, hug the monkey monkey. because we are incredibly social beings. So that's kind of structural. I mean, if you want, the amygdala is in the subcortex. Technically, there are two of them. It is continually registering experiences and information in terms of personal relevance. The amygdala in most people is biased negatively. It appears there are some people who have, as the authors of a study put it, a joyful amygdala. that? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Let's be crystal clear. Amygdala, because there are two of them, do not themselves experience joy, but- for many people, they will react more to negative stimuli contrasted to neutral than they will react to positive. That's the negativity bias. There are some people whose amygdala are relatively ambivalent. They will react equally intensively to negative oh, or to positive lucky, stimuli.
0: Lucky, lucky,
1: And there are some people, and I mm-hmm. think I'm becoming one of them, and you may too, who have an amygdala that will track red lights, will track angry frowns, will yes. track threats like global climate change and other tracks that are more local, let's say, but will react even more strongly to opportunity. So these are people who are promotion-focused, they're opportunity-oriented, they're approach-oriented. They see challenges, they see problems, they see threats, but especially they see opportunities. And that also characterizes, typically, the upper reaches of leadership uh, in an organization. They become opportunity-focused, as you know. And so one thing that becomes plausible, if there are these individual differences, just to talk about amygdala reactivity, that partly are temperamental and dispositional, I won't say which is which, but one of our two kids is more opportunity-oriented, and one of our kids is more (laughs) threat-oriented, prevent the bad. So you start with disposition, and then you have life experiences, which can shape people over time. And I think there's some evidence that we can actually gradually train our amygdalae to recognize threats, but to be less intensely reactive to them and increasingly focused on positive opportunities that we can approach and develop.
0: But is is, is the reaction in the amygdala? I mean, I I, I thought the amygdala is only to highlight it, and then your decision. Oh, no,
1: it initiates the stress response. So the amygdala is really important, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's the primary origin point, kind of as a control center. Think of it like that. It's processing information. It's complicated. It's being regulated by other forces. But the amygdala is what signals the hypothalamus to initiate the hormonal stress response, right mm-hmm. with stress hormones like adrenaline, norepinephrine, and cortisol, and the amygdala also sends signals into either the sympathetic or parasympathetic Correct. branch We're of the nervous system. Yeah. yeah, to fight or flight or freeze. Right. Mm-hmm. So the amygdala is a very important little
0: control center. So, so let, let, let's talk, <laughs> let's talk about those. So what, what happens is the amygdala detect, detects stress or or, or, or stress, opportunity.
1: Stress, let's simplify right?
0: it like that. Right. And then, and then it, sticks. It, yeah, it, it, uh, it signals the autonomous uh, nervous system. So it basically tells your either sympathetic nervous system or, or it's the same system, but basically it engages the sympathetic or the parasympathetic. parasympathetic. Yeah. And, and in that case, mm-hmm. what ends up is that your entire body responds oh, yeah. to, to that stress.
1: That's right that's right and and another very important detail which goes to the saying or oh, an amygdala hijack the amygdala these are parts of the brain in the subcortex that are you know imagine the life of being a little rat like ancestor hundred million years ago dodging dinosaurs and velociraptors and trying not to get it. rule one in the wild is eat lunch today don't be lunch today <laughs> right so you know I had to respond very quickly to, to threats of various kinds and so in that context that part of the brain the amygdala is very close to the thalamus which is a sensory switchboard so mm-hmm. sensory signals are coming in and within a quarter of a second they're their initial processing starts to feed signals into the the hippocampus and amygdala as to what the thing is and whether it's, you know, good or bad, you know, eat it or run from it. Right. Basically. Mm -hmm. And within, you know, half a second, the amygdala is then initiating the beginning of a response cascade through both hormones that are, you know, in the endocrine system and signals in the nervous system. It's initiating that really quickly. The, information that's being processed through our sensory systems makes its way to the more modern prefrontal cortex a second or two later so the amygdala gets a head start jump first ask later right that's really useful in the wild but these days that rapid reaction can hijack us and then what happens is that as we we start moving into that stress response with related emotions of fear or irritation coming in, that starts to shape how our prefrontal cortex is interpreting things and the meanings it's making and the intentions it's attributing to other people. So we can get really swept away by that amygdala hijack. So therefore the practical takeaway in the short term is to slow it down. Mm -hmm. Buy yourself a little time. Take that breath, count to 10 like your grandmother said, slow it down, give the slower but actually much more powerful and well-developed prefrontal cortex time to kind of come online. And then the other takeaway is over time, gradually retrain, learn, okay. in other words, learn in this, these subcortical systems so they're less prickly and reactive and they're also more aware of the, of the good news that's around us as well.
0: So how, how do we develop our prefrontal cortex? So the prefrontal cortex, uh-huh. in my view, is, is really what I think the most powerful device we have in terms of mindfulness, in terms of um, mm-hmm. peacefulness, if you want, yeah. right? Attention, at, deliberate attention happens there. How do we train that?
1: Ah, uh-huh. well, I do want to call out though that if you think of what people, so I'm, I'm a capable of being a very heady guy. I landed in adulthood numb from the neck down. And uh, I had to wake down, not just wake up, right? And so, uh, and I I really, you know, I I like ideas, I'm thoughtful and and so forth, but I just want to be a little careful about privileging the cognitive processing that's going in the prefrontal cortex. It's really important. But at the end of the day, to summarize a, a saying from a psychoanalyst, Frida Fromm Reichman, in the context of therapy, but it applies to people in general, she said, People do not need a new idea. People need a new experience. Mm. Ideas are useful. There's a place for cognitions, there's a place for perspective. But at the end of the day, I think what people mostly care about is what it feels like to be you in your body, moment to moment to moment. And so I. Want to appreciate the cognitive processes and the executive top-down willfulness that is occurring through prefrontal circuitry, as it were, while at the same time really appreciating the bottom-up processes of coming home to our own bodies, inhabiting our own bodies, uh, and appreciating nonverbal activity in the stream of consciousness and the, our emotional life, which is mainly supported by more ancient and, in the brain, lower down systems of
0: various kinds. So that, that amazing, said, Amazing coming from a neuroscientist. So basically you're saying that latest model that was developed is useful, but it shouldn't yeah. be given the top priority. Not right. All the time.
1: And- That's exactly right. And there's a kind of meme that slipped in, like, you know, the lizard brain is the bad brain and the modern brain is the good brain. But people have all kinds of crazy ideas in the neocortex. Just think about all these ideologies and all these obsessions and compulsions and overvalued ideas that people have and righteousness and identifying with their righteousness Uh, or the ways in which people can, who are very good at top-down willfulness as I was, can start to feel increasingly like they are the very dominating rider of the horse of their own being. But the horse is actually getting fatigued and tired and is going to buck them off if they're too much of a domineering Mm jerk. So I think it's important to, to appreciate the whole of the extraordinary brain that we've been endowed with, you know, the culmination of 600 million years of evolution. uh, That would be part one that said, you know, definitely use those prefrontal capabilities to slow things down. And as you said, become more mindful. There's a lot of research that shows that as people repeatedly practice mindfulness, I'll just use that as an example, they physically change their brain. So, for example, people who do a three-day mindfulness training, you know, for maybe half an hour a day in some corporate environments, say, at the end of just three days, measurably, their prefrontal cortex is exercising more regulatory control over a part of the brain that's called the default mode network, which gets active when people have a mind that's wandering, and especially in negative self-preoccupied rumination. So, people become more able to pull out of uh, loops of resentment or regret or self criticism neurologically. In other words, they're discovering in the scanner, in an MRI, that the prefrontal cortex is inhibiting or regulating more a part of the brain in the default mode network just after three days. Mm. After, like, eight weeks of mindfulness-based stress reduction training, an hour or so a day with a day of practice in midway or something like it, there too are lasting changes in terms of uh, more white matter in the hippocampus. It gets a little bigger and it gets more therefore more, it's like growing muscle tissue. You know, if you grow tissue in an area, you become more able to do stuff that those kind of muscles can help you with. Just mindfulness practice, you know, kind of fuzzy, imperfect mindfulness practice still can have measurable physical changes in the brain. And then people who have a long-term practice. I suspect you you have in your way a fairly long-term practice of yeah of one, you know, mindfulness, uh, mm-hmm. as do I. People like us, let's say, or others, and I suspect this applies to other forms of contemplative training, not just mindfulness training, that might be more prayerful in other traditions, let's say, less secular. Uh, still, people who have long-term mindfulness practice have more tissue in prefrontal regions that regulate attention. And emotion and action because they're working that muscle continually. So they literally build structure. They also build structure in a part of the brain called the insula, which is on the inside of the temporal lobes, one on either side, which is very involved with interoception and self-awareness as well as empathy for other people. People with a mindfulness practice have more tissue, cortical tissue, in their insula, they grow tissue there. Like, wow, more connections, more capillaries bringing blood in, you know, more, more kinds of neuroplastic change there, for example. So I'll just leave it right there as an it's illustration. Like,
0: it's like muscles. It's like literally yeah. you've been working out in the gym. You're, you're growing good brain tissue. That's right. Uh, that allows you to do things better. And I, and I I'll say something because I, I truly, in my heart, feel a lot of love for the people that join us in this conversation. Yeah. And I, I will say that one of the things that completely puzzles me is how we have been conditioned in the modern world to go mm-hmm. to the gym five times a week, uh, or go running five times a yeah. week, uh, to 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 binge watch Netflix, to watch <laughs> the news and read the newspapers or whatever you know. Yeah. every day, but not invest an hour a day to build the most important muscle you will ever have, right? A mindful muscle that's able to relate internally, to have empathy outside, to, to regulate events, to not respond always like a lizard, if I may say.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I'm stunned by that too. And a version of that for me is people who will invest a lot in getting competent at, multi, at certain things that they know in their heart are relatively unimportant. They're moderately important at most in their own life, if not less so. And yet they will not invest even five minutes a day. And in a moment, I'll tell you this five minute challenge I offer to people. It just takes five minutes a day, not an hour a day, five minutes a day. They won't invest five minutes a day in becoming more competent with their own thoughts and feelings and desires and the wallpaper of their own mind, the inner atmosphere of their own being. And and I, I think to highlight it, when, when I talk with people about this, I stress the themes of competence and autonomy, which are universal values and speak to a lot of people, I think, who might tend to be initially dismissive of this material. You know, it's kind of very simple. Do you want to become competent with your own stream of consciousness? Yeah. Do you want to become autonomous? Do you want to become more able to direct it? Do you want to become more free in your relationship to it? Or do you want to be swept along, a puppet pulled by the ancient strings of your own neuropsychology and the life experiences that you had? It's up to you, right? So if you're interested in competence, let's say, and becoming more self-willed, more more autonomous, more self-reliant, to me, what we're talking about is the essence of self-reliance in a world that's challenging. Five-minute challenge, you want to hear it?
0: Yes, of course, but hold on, maybe before we do that, let me make my regular announcement. If you guys have been, are, are still here with us, you've been on this conversation more than an hour, then you love Rick and what Rick has to say as much as I do. And I know that in your heart, there is someone that you know that would benefit from this. So please share this with them. Uh, rate rate Slomo a uh, five stars. I know it's weird for me to ask that, but I ask because I, you know, the system basically says if you rate it well, others will know that there is wisdom to be shared here. And yeah, find us myself and Rick on social media and keep the conversation going. Tell us what you think. Ask us more questions. So, Rick, I have two things more that I want to ask you. One is the five minutes challenge. I can't I can't close without talking about neuro, neurodharma. So so let's talk ah, about the five you. minutes challenge first.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate people are still hanging in there with us. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And who oh, knows, maybe you'll, maybe you'll you maybe you'll break this episode up into bite sized pieces. Five minute challenge, really straightforward. As you go through your day, a handful of times, half a dozen times a day say, slow down to take in the good for a breath or two or three. You accomplish something, you're having a really delightful conversation with somebody, something you worried about didn't happen and you can authentically experience some reassurance, whatever it might be, slow down to receive it into yourself. That alone will feel good and it'll change your day because you'll be looking for little things little drops to put in your inner bucket every day. That'll take a minute or two. Second, no one thing in particular you are trying to develop in yourself these days. You're trying to grow. It might be a kind of inner nutrient that's been missing, was missing when you were young, maybe even missing recently. Like for me, feeling included and wanted was missing you know, uh, or maybe it's something you're trying to develop for a particular challenge, more confidence as a public speaker, say, or more patience, you know, with people who are aggravating, you're trying to develop that. What is the one thing you're trying to develop in particular these days? And then focus on having experiences of it, either because you're flagging ones you're already having, or because you're deliberately trying to foster a sense of that, and then value it. It's a high priority experience to really take it in. Bring a big spoon when it comes to that particular key resource you're trying to grow inside yourself. That'll take another minute or two a day. And then for sure, before you go to bed every day, maybe just before you go to bed, marinate in what I call deep green, the felt sense that's authentic of an enoughness of satisfaction, safety, and connection. Slow it down to find a calming for peacefulness, for safety a sense of contentment for satisfaction, gratitude and thankfulness, even knowing you can still aspire for more with a feeling of caring and connection, you know, love flowing out, love flowing in, just resting there, help the, the soft animal of the body, as Mary Oliver put it, come to center and settle down. And so that's five minutes right there. If you do it one day, it'll change your day. If you do it a few days in a row, you'll start to feel a difference. Ten days in a row, you will develop whole new traits that'll serve you and ripple out to benefit other
0: people. The most valuable five minutes of the day, seriously. I, 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 I definitely challenge everyone. So I'm, uh, I'm going to do more than five. I apologize, but uh, I, I.
1: You are a big performer.
0: I find incredible joy, in. Like you you always say, the little by little, the drop by drop. But after a while, you look back at life and you go like, wow, how did I get here? Hmm? It's just five Mm. minutes at a time. That's life, right? It's five minutes a day, day after day, and then you get to a very different place than where you are. Let's talk about Neurodara. I love the name. I love the name. Like, why did I not think of that? I should have (laughs) taken that. (laughs) <laughs> but, but I also love the description. I love how you talk about the idea of you know when you're you're hiking up a mountain and there mm. is this other hiker that is so good and he's yeah. ahead of you, and then he looks back at you and says, "Come on, you can do this, come join oh. us." but I love that image. I love that image and i and I think mm. the essence of your work here is to say, "Look, some of us have benefited from being." it may be a little bit of a head start, okay? Mm -hmm. But we all can get to that place where we be the best we can be.
1: Yeah. And I tend to not use this kind of terminology because it uh, in certain circles, but it is how I think of it. How might we reverse engineer the upper reaches of human potential? How might we reverse engineer in a word, awakening or enlightenment even?
0: That's a big one, Rick. That's a big one.
1: Oh yeah, but isn't that one of the coolest questions?
0: It really is. I, You know, the, the, the scary bit is that you actually have a model that we're gonna discuss in a minute, but reverse engineer awakeness.
1: That's yeah, awakening. And think of awakening as process and destination. So it's both the path and the fruit. And as they say in Tibet, we can take the fruit as the path. We can take the experiences and the qualities we have as we develop as our path of practice and by experiencing them, we reinforce them. There's a classic saying, your mind takes its shape from what it repeatedly rests upon. So if we repeatedly rest our mind upon the qualities that we see in people who are very far along the path, we gradually hardwire them into our own brain. Mm -hmm. And so in my book, um, I say, that there are, to me, clearly seven qualities that you see really developed in people who are very far along. And you can also see these seven qualities developed in any path of personal development or healing. And with modern neuroscience, we can gradually and plausibly exploit what we are now learning about what's actually happening in the body, in our biology, our hardware, as people are experiencing and developing these seven qualities so i'll just name them right now and and some of them we might wanna, seem a little to
0: jump into a few of them so so okay. name them and then i want us to to stop on number three four and five if you don't mind all
1: right you're going okay.
0: hardcore so, great look, look, stuff I, I, so i i love steady your mind steady your yeah. mind we've spent most of the conversation today to that's talk true about, right yeah we, i love warm your heart yes which I wish we would have a full podcast on, because I have yeah. to say, honestly, it is one quality that is becoming more and more sadly lacking in humanity. Okay. Yeah. But yes. but but let's dedicate another conversation for this. I want yeah. I want to discuss rest in fullness. What does that mean?
1: Oh, okay, great. So as an overview, I'll name these seven qualities and people listening can can kind of register where they're at with each one of them. And I want to be really clear. I don't regard myself as someone who's at the pinnacle. I, I look at people like Mathieu Ricard, for example, as much farther along the path than I am. But I'm really interested in what he's got. You know? Exactly. exactly. Like,
0: <laughs> you know, like Einstein's brain was uh, dissected yeah, yeah. After, after his death. We want yeah. Matthew's brain now. That's right, that's right.
1: So we, we observe people and just like anything, in any domain, you observe people who are a little more skillful or a little farther along or a lot more skillful and you think, okay, how can I start to live into plausibly, authentically, some of what they're doing themselves that's fostering causes and conditions that are fostering their state of being, right? So seven qualities, steadiness, steadiness of mind, lovingness, warming your heart, So you can think of each of these as both the fruit and the path, as a quality and a practice. So steadying your mind, steadiness of mind, warming your heart for lovingness, resting in fullness, by which I mean, and I'll come back to it, emotional balance, resilient well-being, a sense of contentment and peace and love that's unconditionally present inside yourself, even as you deal with the challenges of life. So there's little actual basis for the craving, that leads to so much suffering and harm. And I'm using the word craving very broadly and loosely. And then the fourth is being whole, feeling undivided, and having a sense of being your mind process as a whole and recognizing things as a whole, rather than getting caught up in one part struggling with another part. Fifth practice, receiving nowness, really resting in the present. What actually is happening in the brain when people are being here now? Or enjoying the power of now, as Eckhart Tolle would say, like being in the emergent, receiving the emergent edge of now. And then, sixth, opening into allness, a sense of oneness with things. You know that you're a you. I know that there's Mo over there and there's the Rick process over here, but you start to experience yourself more rather than being separated and isolated and beleaguered, buoyed by life, interdependently connected with everything and lived by everything. And then seventh, moving into the ultimate practice, what I call finding timelessness, a sense of what the Buddha somewhat mysteriously referred to as unconditioned, what is meaningfully distinct from ordinary conditioned experiences, and even perhaps transcendentally distinct from the conditioned unfolding Big Bang universe, finding, and therefore, because it's not subject to arising and passing away by being conditioned, it is therefore in some sense timeless. Right. so those are the seven qualities steadiness lovingness fullness wholeness nowness allness and timelessness and i allowed myself in this my sixth book a more poetic and lyrical voice while also at the same time bringing in a lot of really cool cutting-edge hardcore neuroscience
0: yeah so what what you're doing in that book is you're you're basically taking some of those who you believe have gone up that mountain
1: yeah and and operationalizing their state of being Like if you think of people who just, they're completely in the present and you hang out with them, they're utterly in the present. A guy like me, a neuropsychologist kind of like, I'm looking at what's going on in the hardware. How do they do that? You know, or you see people who they just have an unshakable calm on the core of their being and they feel what they feel. You see that in the Dalai Lama, for example, they feel what they feel, but there's, uh, there's a, imperturbability in the core of their being. And, and you can pick people in your life who are not famous, even like some kindergarten teacher who, when she dies 300 people come to her memorial service because she was kind of a living saint and she was extraordinary. How do they do that? So that's what I explore in the book to the extent plausible what's actually going on in the hardware that we can then use with, you know, understanding to help ourselves have certain key experiences which then we can maximize the growing and learning from.
0: What is timelessness again? What did you say the Buddha
1: about that? Right. So to frame it, experiences are an unreliable basis for the highest happiness because they're always changing. Mm-hmm. We can't hold on to them. And we create suffering when we try to hold on to them and essentialize them, reify them and possess them. My precious. We get in trouble <laughs> that way, right? Yes. So... Deep inside of the Buddha was to really radically challenge our holding, our seeking of the highest happiness through transient experiences that are conditioned. And he spoke of in the deeper trainings, which you find analogs to in other deep traditions, secular and particularly typically religious traditions, these very deep experiences of non ordinary states of consciousness moving into a cessation of ordinary conditioned consciousness for some period of time from which people then come back into ordinary conditioned streams of consciousness forever altered in beneficial ways by what happened there. What in the world is going on with that? So in the chapter on timelessness, I really tried to plausibly explore what could be happening in the brain in the run-up to nirvana, in the movement toward cessation of ordinary consciousness and one way to understand that is entirely inside the natural frame of the ordinary big bang universe i'm okay with people who understand that way i have teachers like Stephen Batchelor, lee Brazington, people who understand it in those terms i think the buddha understood it and i understand it in terms that include a cessation of ordinary experience in natural in the natural universe as well as an encounter with something that's transcendental something that's meaningfully distinct. And I think too for example, in the Tibetan tradition would include that as part of what is ultimately sure. unconditioned. How can we help ourselves within the natural Big Bang universe become, if it's a meaningful interest to a person, and if it's not, I'm okay with that. But if it is, how can we help ourselves become more porous to, more permeable to, that which is meaningfully un- Conditioned and thus timeless, perhaps also with qualities of consciousness and maybe some kind of benevolence or love.
0: I am selfishly asking those questions for me. I love, love, love your work. I love mm. our. Thank you very much.
1: Really. I love
0: you, dear Lyric. I think you're an mm. amazing being. And I'm so grateful that you joined me. I'm so grateful that you shared so generously. And I Thank apologize you. for interrupting your sabbatical, but hey, you know what? was <laughs> well, 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 well worth it for me and a few thousand others.
1: Mm. Well, one of the beautiful qualities in people, and I think it's one that we need more of in this life, is is a kind of generosity. And you're very generous. And one of the ways we're generous with others is a kind of blessing disposition, uh, a kind of seeing the good in the other and appreciating it. And, and that's so important, even people who are on the other side of the political divide, you know, seeing the good in them amidst things we may disagree with, yeah, and, and, your, and your, that's one of your superpowers, Mo, obviously, uh, I, uh, is seeing the I mean, good. It's not, it's, not,
0: it's not that difficult when there is so much good in mm. so, many, so many ways. Mm. Thank you. Very, very grateful. I hope, I believe, we are going to have to do this again after your survival.
1: I think so. I would love to do that. The thing I would really maybe just offer as kind of a final note uh, that you've underlined repeatedly is that wherever we are in terms of the so-called mountain of awakening, whether we're down on the dusty plains or in the foothills or even the, the mountains themselves, wherever we are, however bad our day is, whatever challenges we are facing, we can always take the next step. We can always turn to the good that is real and slow it down and take it into ourselves. We can always see what's just the next little bit of development or growth and help ourselves move into it. And as those minutes add up, obviously, and as those drops add up, you know, the years add up as well. And that's the opportunity for us all. Whatever that next step might be, take it today. And then the one after that tomorrow.
0: Well, what can I say? I simply feel light and inspired by my conversation with someone I admire so much. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rick as much as I did. If you did, please do me a favor and spread the message. Rate this podcast a five stars on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already done so. And if you have, please forgive me for repeating it, but it's the only way we can get this message to reach as many people as we can. Share it on social media. Tag me if you like, and I'll spread it further. And please do tell your friends what you learn and what you find interesting. I'm Mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo_gaudet_official on Facebook, mo gaudet on LinkedIn, and mgaudet on Twitter. And all of my work, hundreds and hundreds of videos, are available for you on youtube.com slash solveforhappy. Remember to subscribe, follow, and do all of those amazing things that keep us connected. I can't thank you enough for the alibi that you gave me to start this effort and meet so many wonderful, wise, inspiring people. I know you have a million and a half things to do on a daily basis, but once you look for it, there's always that little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening.